Well, as you consider the words of that song, onward, Christian soldier, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ, the royal master, leading, leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. Christian soldier, marching as to war, are you up to the challenge? Do you have what it takes? Are you sufficient for the battle? Where is your sufficiency found? These are some of the questions and themes that we'll be considering as we examine a few more of the miracles of Jesus, beginning with the feeding of the 5,000. The framing of the question as we read through that account is this. Confronted with the needs of others, what do you have to offer? Confronted with the needs of others, what do you have to offer? I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 30. You can find it on page 41 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first five verses. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Hear the word of the Lord to you. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he, Jesus, went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Let us pray. Father, as we behold the revealing of Jesus through his works and through his word, grant us the eyes to see him rightly, to recognize who he is and to be shepherded as his sheep. Lord, teach us many things. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. going to try something new this morning. I'm going to try to build out the sermon outline on the projector using a new little clicker I have. We'll see how it goes. Well, getting to our passage, recall that in last week's passage, the 12 apostles were sent out by Jesus two by two. They were sent out to, to proclaim that people should repent of their sins, to cast out demons, and to heal many who were sick. That is then followed by Mark's account of the beheading of John the Baptist, which is then immediately followed here in verse 30 with the return of the apostles from their first missionary journey as they report to Jesus all that they had done and taught. He then calls them to, to come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for they had no leisure even to eat, what with the, the crowds that had begun to follow them. Certainly much can be said about the importance of times of rest. The institution of the Sabbath for the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt, it, it certainly speaks to this, as the Israelites were required to refrain from labor every Saturday. And there's much to be said for the common Christian practice of, of taking an occasional retreat to get away from your normal environment in order to, to truly rest in the Lord, to reflect upon the season of life that has just passed, and to seek the Lord's leading for the days that lie ahead of you. We get a glimpse of the, the kind of retreat that Jesus has in mind in the next section, 
After the crowds derail the disciples' attempt at rest, we read this in verse 46, skipping ahead just a moment. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. That's the kind of restful retreat that Jesus has in mind. Silence and solitude for the sake of prayer. Silence and solitude for the sake of communing with God the Father. While this is not the point of the passage, the importance of rest is something that some of us need to hear and to heed. Others of us, on the other hand, may instead need to hear and to heed the rebuke found throughout the Scriptures to to get busy and to to stop being a sluggard. But even even in that case, the, the rest that is being indulged by the sluggard is not the kind of rest that Jesus has in mind, is it? Because godly rest, communing with the Lord in prayer, godly rest, it it rejuvenates and it propels you into further labor, living for God, not for yourself. Importance of times of rest. But getting back to their derailed retreat, their derailed time of rest, the crowds they're trying to escape seek to see them depart in a boat, Those crowds then, they run along the shore to get to where the disciples are headed even before the boat does. So clearly they're not traversing any substantial portion of the sea, which is really just a lake. It's on the northern edge. Verse 34. When Jesus went to shore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. This this echoes the words of Moses in the wilderness. You might recall that, that Moses himself, after fleeing from Egypt early in his life, was a, a literal shepherd of sheep when God called him from the burning bush to establish him as the leader of God's people. Then, 40, actually more, 80 years later, near the end of his life, God tells him when and where he's going to die. And Moses responds to the news of his death by saying this in Numbers 27, verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. But of course, Joshua eventually dies as Moses died thus beginning a long, sad story of the Israelites suffering without a faithful shepherd to lead them. Well, that is until God called another man out of the fields where he was tending sheep and established him as the leader of God's people, King David. But of course, like Moses, like Joshua, David eventually died as well, beginning an even longer, even sadder story of the Israelites suffering without a faithful shepherd to lead them. That is until the coming of Jesus, who is the greater Moses, the greater Joshua, the greater David. He came to a people who were like sheep without a shepherd. As God had had spoken through Ezekiel 600 years earlier in in the verses that Melissa read from Ezekiel 34, God rebuked the kings and the officials and the priests of that day who had failed to feed God's sheep, who had failed to protect them from the wild beasts who sought their harm. 600 years earlier, nothing had changed. The immediately preceding verses of our record here in Mark chapter 6 
record the gruesome beheading of God's prophet, John the Baptist, by King Herod as part of the entertainment at a dinner party. That's the work of the, the shepherd of God's people, to behead God's prophet. And even before that, in chapter 3, we read about the religious and the political leaders of Israel forming an unholy alliance in order to kill the long-promised Messiah of God's people. The one spoken of through Ezekiel when God said, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, for I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Jesus is that shepherd, the Messiah from the line of David who had come to judge between the fat shepherds and the starving sheep. It says he had compassion on them as he came to them as sheep without a shepherd. So how then did he begin to shepherd them? How did he feed his sheep? Quote, and he began to teach them many things. This is the primary way that Jesus cares for his sheep. The role of the shepherd is to lead, feed, and protect his flock. It's through his word that Jesus leads us, giving us instruction and setting before us a mission. It is through his word that Jesus feeds us, nourishing us with the knowledge of God, with the knowledge of his presence and purpose in and through our lives. It's through his word that Jesus protects us from error, fending off the wolves, fending off the wild beasts by exposing false teaching. He leads, feeds, and protects his flock by teaching them many things. As an aside, note that this is the task entrusted to Christ's under-shepherds, that is, to pastors, slash elders, slash overseers. The word for pastor in the, in the Greek is just the word for, for shepherd. And it's clearly used interchangeably throughout the New Testament with the word for elder and with the word for overseer. Pastor, elder, overseer, the, the three different words described, describing one single office within the church. The pattern we see in Scripture is for God to call multiple people within each local church to this office, regardless of whether we call them pastors or elders or overseers. And their primary function is to lead, to feed, and to protect God's flock through the ministry of God's Word. That is through teaching and preaching and counseling and encouraging and rebuking with God's Word. Two key passages that you might jot down that demonstrate this point are Titus chapter 1 and Acts chapter 20. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 14. Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 32. Under shepherds, under shepherds, pastors, elders, overseers, they follow the path of the good shepherd by leading, feeding, and protecting God's flock through the ministry of God's word. Here in Mark chapter 6, the, the miraculous feeding that then follows the, the, these words here, in part illustrates the spiritual feeding of the shepherd in teaching them many things. Verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and, and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. 
As we're going to see in, in verse 44, there, there were 5,000 men here. And as Matthew further clarifies in Matthew 14, 21, that number of 5,000, it did not include the women and the children who were there. The disciples estimated that it would take 200 denarii, that is more than eight months' worth of wages for the average laborer, eight months' wages to buy enough food to feed this great crowd. They don't have that kind of money. And even if they did, there's no food for sale here in this deserted place. So why then does Jesus say, you give them something to eat? They can't. And that's the point. They need to consider their, their inability in contrast to his ability. They need to consider their insufficiency in contrast to his perfect sufficiency. Their inadequacy in contrast to his perfect adequacy. Think about your salvation. Where is your sufficiency found? Not in yourself. It's sometimes said that the only qualification needed to come to Jesus to be saved is to accept how unqualified you are to be in His presence. Acceptance of your disqualification is your qualification. Well, much, much the same can be said for following Jesus, for doing what He calls you to do, for, for opening your mouth to speak truth, for giving this bread of life to others that they may eat and be satisfied. Much of the letter of 2 Corinthians is about this very point. But the heart of Paul's message in 2 Corinthians is found at the, the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses from the end of chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, beginning of chapter 3. Paul says this, describing our, our Christian calling as Christian soldiers. He says this, Through us, God spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we, God's people, are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who then is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many just peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency for the task is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. So to somewhat overstate it for the sake of emphasis, when it comes to evangelizing and discipling others, acceptance of your disqualification is your qualification. Acceptance of your inadequacy for the task is your adequacy. Acceptance of your insufficiency is your sufficiency. Because until you accept your insufficiency in and of yourself to do what God has called you to do, you will not consciously seek for Christ to make you sufficient. Verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Verse 40. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. This dividing them into groups of hundreds and fifties 
It's hard not to see an echo of Moses in the wilderness in Exodus 18, dividing the people into groups of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Verse 41, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. So after having commanded them, you give them something to eat. When they had nothing in their hands to give, he then fills their hands with exactly what those around them need. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. It's designed to teach these 12 apostles, and it's designed to teach us that all we have to offer the spiritually needy people around us is the bread that Jesus provides us. Not your own wisdom, not your own speculations, not silence, or not the affirmations of falsehood as our culture insists, but but rather what you have to offer the spiritually needy people around you is only the bread of life, the Word of God. When confronted with the spiritual needs of others, that is what you have to offer, that with which He fills your hands. Picking back up in verse 41, and He divided the, the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, thousands of them. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the bread and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. It's quite a contrast. Quite a contrast to the feast that was described in the immediately preceding verses. The feast of King Herod was filled with debauchery, foolishness, and murder. The feast of King Jesus was filled with compassion, teaching, and nourishment. The wicked shepherd takes life. The good shepherd gives life. In the parallel account in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Have you eaten and been satisfied by this bread of life? Are you continuing to feast upon the green pasture to which he has led you? Are you living not by physical bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The good shepherd feeds his sheep. Eat and be satisfied. Well, the remaining two sections of our passage are are much briefer, beginning in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had taken the leave of them, He went up on the mountain to pray. So he sends his disciples ahead of him in a boat, and he stays behind. Why the abruptness in dispersing this huge crowd that had just been fed, thousands of people, this abruptness of dispersing them and immediately getting away from them? Well, Mark doesn't tell us why, but John does tell us about the abruptness. We read this in John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people, the people that had just eaten, when they saw the sign that Jesus had done, the feeding of the 5,000, they said, oh, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Then perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. I mean, they were right. He, He is the prophet who has come into the world. He is the king of all creation, but he's not the kind of king 
that they were expecting. He had not come to defeat the Romans, as they thought. He had come to defeat sin and death. He had not come to sit on an earthly throne, as they had thought. He had come to hang on a Roman cross. But the crowds never understood this. So he had to disperse them and to slip away. Verse 47 of our passage. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea. Remember, he sent them ahead on the boat. The boat was out on sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. Several English translations render it, they were straining at the oars. It's a powerful picture. So much for their men's retreat, right? They're not getting any rest here. This goes on for hours. Verse 48 says it was about the fourth watch of the night, meaning that, meaning that it was about 3 a.m., between 3 and 6 a.m. or later when, when Jesus finally came to them. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, or I am. Do not be afraid. What Jesus says to them in this moment is just as interesting as what he doesn't say. Remember why they're in this boat to begin with. Verse 45, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. The storm came upon them because of their obedience, not because of their disobedience. And yet, notice that Jesus doesn't come and apologize to them for having sent them into the storm. He doesn't come and apologize for having allowed them to endure hours of painful rowing before rescuing them. Notice that Jesus doesn't explain why he did these things, does he? He has his purposes for the storms into which he sends you. He has his purposes for allowing the waves to continually crash against you. Hours on end, days on end, weeks on end, months and years on end. Yes, the good shepherd cares for his sheep. Yes, the good shepherd protects his sheep. But that doesn't mean that he spares us from all pain and difficulty. It means he is with us in the storm. It means that he has a purpose for the storms. It means that he will not allow the storms to snatch us out of his tender, caring hand. Verse 51. Walking on the sea, he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They didn't understand what about the loaves. They didn't understand what it said about who Jesus is. Recall that the immediately preceding section began with some, some people speculating that Jesus was the, the new Elijah that had been promised to come, while others speculated that he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. And King Herod thought Jesus was empowered by the ghost of John the Baptist. It's a question of who is Jesus. But with the feeding of the 5,000 immediately after that, and with the walking on water, Jesus has demonstrated who he is. He is the good shepherd who leads his sheep exactly where he needs them to be. And he is the Lord of all creation who can calm storms 
We must find rest by trusting in His leading. Much in our passage draws attention to Moses and to the Exodus. But it's not merely that Jesus is showing Himself to be the new Moses, leading a new Exodus. He is, but it's it's more than that. God is the one who caused bread from heaven to appear on the ground in the desert every morning, satisfying His people's hunger there in the wilderness. Here, it's Jesus who creates food with His bare hands in a deserted place. Back in the Exodus, God is the one who parts the waters of the Red Sea as Moses lifts up His staff. Here, Jesus walks on water and causes the sea to obey His command. Back in the Exodus, God is the one who who passed by Moses with Moses safely secured in the cleft of a rock so that Moses was given a glimpse of God's glory. Here, it's Jesus who does the passing by so that His disciples may be given a further glimpse of His glory. And finally, God is the one who spoke to Moses from a burning bush, instructing Moses to say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Here, it is Jesus who utters those same words, I am. You see, when Jesus said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, that middle phrase, it is I, is simply the two words for I am. And given the context and these constant allusions back to the Exodus, it appears to be a deliberate allusion to God speaking to Moses from the bush, saying, I am. All of this demonstrates that Jesus is God in human flesh. And Mark is saying that his disciples should have understood this. As they beheld his miracles, they should have understood who he was. But their hearts were hardened against the truth of who Jesus is. Had they, quote, understood about the loaves, they would not have panicked at the fury of the storm. Had they understood about the loaves, they would not have been frightened at the sight of the God-man walking on the waters, thinking he was a ghost. Beloved, understand who Jesus is. Trust him to lead you. Trust him to care for you. Trust him to accomplish his good purposes through you and find rest for your soul in the storms in which He sends you. Finally, immediately after the disciples' failure to recognize Jesus on the waters, in more ways than one, this failure to recognize Jesus is then contrasted with a crowd of people who, quote, immediately recognized Him. Verse 53. When they had crossed over the sea, after the storm was calm, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore there. So it's just south of Capernaum. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Having recognized him, they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard Jesus was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So those who recognize who Jesus is, what do they do? They immediately run to Jesus to be made well, to be saved. Again, as I noted back in chapter 5 with the miracles there, this, this phrase, this word, be made well, is the word for be saved. There's no debating what Mark is intending for us to see here. Like the bleeding woman in chapter 5, 
who reached out in faith to touch Jesus' garment. And like these crowds in chapter 6, we must reach out to Jesus in faith to be made well, to be saved. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so he did. He lived the perfect life that we, as his sheep, have failed to live. He died the death that we deserve. But having laid down his life for his sheep, he took it back up again, rising from the grave on the third day in victory over sin and death, so that all who place their trust in him as their good shepherd for the forgiveness of their sins will be granted eternal life. So we see here in these last the verses here, we must recognize who he is. We must recognize our need to be made well, as those people on the shore did with the sick, running to Jesus, recognizing who he is, recognizing their need to be made well. And then we must personally reach out to touch him in faith. Recognize who he is. Recognize your need to be made well and reach out in faith to be made well. Find your sufficiency in him. Your sufficiency for being accepted into his eternal presence and Having done so, find your sufficiency in Him for serving Him on earth until that day comes. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word to us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, apply Your Word to our hearts that we may eat and be satisfied, that we may trust You and find rest in the storm, that we may take Your life-giving Word to others, that they too may believe and be saved. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.